Who's on first? What's on second? I don't know who's on third. You're killing me, Smalls. There's no crying in baseball. Eye on the ball, okay? One, two, three, strike. That guy was a bro. <laughs> and his name is Dan Ugly. Let's go Bucks. Oh, uh, you're calling me weird. God bless America. God bless the queen. Hello and welcome to a new episode of The Top Step. I am Steve Miller from Dover, Delaware. I'm sitting with Paul Fritchner over Zoom, still in Cincinnati, Ohio. Paul, it's the first day of March Madness in two years. How are you feeling? Steve, I feel alive again. I feel like a breath of fresh air has just consumed my lungs. I feel like the world has opened up in front of my eyes and I feel alive that was absolutely poetic. <laughs> I still hold to my thesis that Dayton would have won the 2020 tournament had it been played. But nevertheless, even that Dayton's not playing in 2021, I'm so happy to be watching the college basketball tournament again. I just watched, who did I watch? Mount St. Mary's and Texas Southern in like a 16 matchup, which I don't really care about at all. But it was the tournament and it was so excellent to watch. And then Drake and Wichita State give us our first real close game, potentially a buzzer beater. Wichita State misses a shot at the buzzer. And look, this is a baseball podcast, but I'm going to give you 10 seconds here. Why Wichita State does not drive to the basket there? It's the same thing they did in the American Conference semifinal against Cincinnati. Take it to the bucket, man. I know you want your March moment and you want to hit that three and you want to be on the highlight reels forever. I, I know that and I get it. But you can create so much of the rim. You can get fouled. You can do anything. Oh, seeing them just pull up for that, you know, long three is brutal. Yeah, my thoughts exactly. I mean, I get it. You know, you do want your March moment. And you don't really know how much time's on the clock because you're dribbling the basketball. But at the same time, he had enough time, definitely, to at least get inside the three-point yes. line. Yeah. Oh, for sure. But, hey, it's the first four, and then – uh, we got the full two days tomorrow. And then it, it's weird that we're talking on a Thursday night tonight. And it should be that we're, what time is it right now? It's 9.35 right now. We should be just about tipping off the games that are, you know, at like, uh, what's what's a, like a, the where the Kings play in Sacramento. Sacramento and Boise, Idaho. Yeah. Like we should be tipping off the four games that are being played on the West Coast time zone right now. But instead, uh, we're tipping off two games in the first four. They bump it Friday to Monday, I guess, just to give it, the teams an extra day or two. Quarantine. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I remember vividly my, my late Wednesday nights at uh, UD Arena covering the first four. <laughs> it was uh, a great midweek college basketball interlude. Uh, yeah. But yeah, they, they shifted everything uh, by a day or two here. All right. So we'll, we'll roll into our baseball topic for today. Baseball season is right around the corner uh, from a regular season standpoint. Spring training is in full swing. And Paul, you and I have talked about architecture before on the podcast, uh, most recently in our review of uh, the ballpark baseball in the American City book. We've talked about it with, I don't know, some human geography experts uh, just between you and I and our, uh, our baseball travels and some analysis of, of the best and worst parks. But recently, about uh, three years ago, actually, in 2018, my church in Fredericksburg, Virginia, opened up a new church building. And I talked to our pastor then, Father James Hudgens, and uh, he did his master's thesis in church architecture. And he made a few interesting points to me that just kind of stuck in my head. And as I read that ballpark book, and as I thought more about baseball parks, 
I realized there are a lot of parallels between the histories specifically of Catholic church architecture and baseball ballpark architecture, and in general between architecture, uh, between the general religious and civic realm and ballparks. So I thought I'd have him on the show, interview him, see what he had to think and say about both churches and ballparks and get his historical and intellectual perspective. I conducted the interview by myself, but Paul, you had a chance to listen to it. Did anything stick out to you? I liked the part where he was talking about, you mentioned it, and then he mentioned, uh, it, it was right toward the beginning of the interview where you were talking about how when you walk into a ballpark, one of the things that ballparks like to do around the outside is try to encapsulate the city. Some ballparks do it better than others. You know, I, Nationals Park has some architecture around the outside, statues, things like that. But as a sports fan, the one of the coolest things about going to a game, and even if it's in an arena, uh, NFL stadium, whatever, baseball stadium, no matter where it is, when you scan your ticket and you go through the gate, to me, the coolest part of entering any venue is seeing the playing surface. And I specifically remember growing up, going to college basketball games, even back to when I would go to George Mason games when I was like nine, 10 years old, you'd scan your ticket and you'd go to walk in and you couldn't quite see the playing surface yet, but you could see the concourse and you could see like the banner scoreboard around the top where the, you know, in between the levels that would run along the bottom rows of seating, you know, and you could see the ribbon scoreboard. Then you would walk in and the whole arena would open up to you. It's the same thing at a baseball stadium where you walk in and the field is in front of you. Right. And you just see, okay, this is what I'm going to be consuming for the next three hours. And, and it's cool. It's, it's a, it's especially at stadiums that you haven't been to before it's fun and that's one of the most fun parts to me about being a sports fan but as he talked about in church and religious architecture a lot of times the focal point not a lot of times the entire point of church architecture the focal point is the altar just like in sports the focal point is the field or the playing surface or the court and Church architecture has evolved where a lot of churches have, you know, built in the shape of a cross or in different religions, they're shaped different ways as, as he related it to the Catholic church shaped toward the altar shape because of the cross, um, you know, things like that. So I just thought the way that he related those things, uh, was, that was what stuck out to me the most, especially from the beginning part of it. Absolutely. And I, I think what you were talking about there with seeing the playing surface is really what sticks in a lot of people's minds when they go to like a Fenway park, for instance, for the first time, at least for me, I remember going to Fenway for the first time and, and seeing specifically like the green monster and seeing the outfield. And as it kind of led up to, to this, this backdrop that I've seen so many times on television, but to really internalize it and to be there and to know that, that I was now a part of, of what's really a historical building in a great American city uh, just really stuck in my mind. Now, if you are just a sports fan and don't really care at all about religion, um, there, there's still a lot of great conversation that should interest you in the podcast. Specifically, he gets into the intellectual history of architecture. And that, that conversation really stuck out to me um, when Father Hudgens started talking about the French Revolution and pretty much since the Renaissance, culture, specifically cultural expressions and art and architecture, stopped becoming more God-focused and started becoming more man-focused. 
but as it works with a lot of these like spiritual physics that we kind of talk about, as we started focusing more towards the goals of men, we almost started degrading ourselves. And it was St. Irenaeus who said that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. So as we now have returned in our architecture towards glorifying God in our churches and glorifying some of those transcendental things like beauty and goodness in civic architecture in ballparks and in buildings, we're now creating better experiences for our own humanity, regardless of how you feel about God, orienting the art and architecture towards those transcendental things is actually more beneficial for us. And I never thought about it that way, but that's something that transcends even sports, even culture to, to essentially everything we do and everything we build as a human society. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think, uh, I think culture has evolved. Public opinion has evolved certainly, but it's, it's something that, you know, architecture has evolved too. And we've seen some of the more modern designs of churches, the more modern design of ballparks. Now look at what Oakland's going to do with the athletics out there for their new stadium. They're on like render number three for what they're going to try and build. And it's the same general idea out there in Oakland, but each rendering has been pretty wildly different um, in the sense of just how the, the layout of the stadium is going to be. And, you know, each individual church has its own characteristics, stained glass windows, the way the church is shaped. Older churches, you know, mid 1900s churches, you know, between, you know, looking at 1950s, 60s and there, a lot of the churches were in the round, right? And now they're more central focused. And I was never somebody that growing up liked to sit on the sides. I was like sitting right down the <laughs> middle and, you know, I, I don't like seeing the sides of people's faces. I want to look straight on, but, uh, you know, at Xavier Bellarmine Chapel um, was in the round and it's just now it's you don't see as much in the newer uh, designs as you do or even some churches where you would look at the back of the priest with the with with, uh, you know, pews all the way around and circling. I, I haven't seen too many of that, but I have seen it before and it's it's unique. Yeah, absolutely. So without further ado, let's roll right into this. It's Father James Hudgens. He was the pastor at St. Jude Church in Fredericksburg, Virginia, uh, where I was a member with my family when I lived there. And now he's the pastor of St. Teresa in Ashburn. Enjoy. All right, Father James Hudgens, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? You're doing very well. Very well, thanks. And I'm glad to be here. So you've mentioned before that you, you wrote your master's thesis on the subject of church architecture and its history. Um, yes. So can you, can you go into that a little bit and just kind of talk about what you find so important about using intentional architecture? Okay. Well, um, now with this, I would have to speak first and foremost, not only as a, as a priest, but as a Catholic, uh, in that uh, matter matters, for lack of a better term. Um, our surroundings matter. Uh, the way we dress matters. The materials that we use to do things matter. And this is something that the church recognized from an early age when it developed its, its uh, architecture, namely that the building in which we gather has a purpose. Uh, that purpose is the praise and worship of God, the raising up of human hearts to God. And they realized that the surroundings that they're in either helped that or hindered that. So the church spent decades and decades, shouldn't say decades, I should say centuries, Uh, refining its architecture uh, until it became an expression uh, of what it wanted to do inside that building. Now, that's kind of the 
basic overview uh, of it with, with many more details that I could easily fill in. One of the things that you mentioned when you opened up St. Jude in, in 2018 is that uh, we construct in stone what we profess in faith. I remember that line. What is it physically about a building, about a church building that's indicative of what we do inside? Okay. Inside of a church building, first and foremost, we offer the Eucharist. First and foremost, we offer the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Uh, that is why uh, the church, as again, as I said, over centuries and centuries, built its churches in the shape of a cross in which the heart of the cross is the altar of sacrifice. The body of the cross, the arms, the legs, so to speak, are the people, the pews, because we become what we receive in the Eucharist. We become the body of Christ. Um, and so the, actually we, we found, again, trial and error, but through centuries of doing this, is that actually physically gathering in the shape of a cross really matters uh, to the lived expression of what we do inside that building. Um, one thing you could say about the spiritual life is that it's first and foremost a life. It's not a theory. It's not an idea. It's something you actually get out there and live. Um, uh, so uh, when the church uh, decided to construct its architecture to help us to live that better, it found that certain materials, forms, and styles were more efficacious than others. Because, um, yeah, what I found is that a good ballpark uh, it can be defined as roots and urbe, meaning the rural within the within the urban. And what I when I learned this, I just thought it was so enlightening because uh, like a really good classic ballpark melds the the human elements of the surrounding city. And it, it brings them in almost seamlessly into the fabric of the park itself. And then it culminates in, in a boundary that gives way to the field, the 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 rural realm, the green oasis. And then those, those two elements melding is really what defines a good ballpark. And I think it's similar, like you mentioned, to a church where it's the, the focus point is the sacrifice and it's where, where heaven meets earth. So is there anything kind of about like the shape of the altar itself, or you mentioned the, the altar being at the heart of the cross that denotes that, that meeting between the realms of heaven and earth? Well, it's at the, it's at the, uh, the very crossing. Uh, it, it's everyone's focal point. Um, it is also set apart from the rest of the, from, from the rest of the church. You could say the word holy means, the word holy actually means set apart. Um, it means different, literally. Um, I believe the Hebrew word is kadosh. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's elevated. So people look up to it. It's clearly, uh, far more ornamented. It's marbled. It's gilded. It's often set apart, uh, by the existence of a physical altar rail. Uh, so when you walk into a church, you could, you could be a visitor from, you know, it could be an alien from the planet Mars that could walk into this building and would immediately recognize whatever's happening here. Clearly that altar, that thing in the middle, that's what it's all about. It's, it, and, and so that has an effect on all the people that go into that building. Yeah. Another cool thing that it sets baseball apart differently from, from other sports is that home plate is the focus of the action, but it's the focus for both teams. There's not two separate goals. It's, it's the one center and it's where the action starts and the action returns to. Um, and so I think in similarly to the churches, there's that the altar, it, it's the focus point and it kind of denotes that we're all always drawn back towards God from whom we came in the first place. Does that make sense? Yes. 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 I think that's exactly correct. Actually, as you were, you know, if you don't mind going off the subject of churches and back to the subject of ballparks here, there's of course, yeah. actually that, that you were saying that, uh, you know, it, 
that I realized that um, if you look at some of these ballparks now, they will deliberately have a if, almost like a cutout in the architecture that features the city, mm-hmm. as if to say, uh, this is part of who we are, all of us gathered here. That city out there that everyone clearly sees, uh, we are, I don't know, Kansas City, or we are St. Louis, or whatever. I don't, uh, you can see like a Pittsburgh, whatever it might be. Um, you can see it cut out of the city. Uh, there's another, th- actually another, I was thinking another parallel between church architecture and ballpark architecture that I, I think would stand to reason is um, when, when I built the church at St. Jude, I said, I want to build something that our ancestors would recognize and that our children will be proud of. Why? Because the faith is bigger than this generation. The faith is uh, timeless, really. And it's kind of, an, there's almost an arrogance to think that we own it. And it's only about us and our own generation. So I said, I want to I build a church, a new church that looks like an old church. We'd say, well, why do you want to build it looks like an old church? Because we recognize when we walk into a place that looks old, that what we're doing in there is bigger and older and more timeless than we are. Similarly, you know, you look at a place like one of the things, one of the ballparks that really started the whole ballpark revolution was Camden Yards in, in, in Baltimore. Right. And it had this retro look and people like the retro look. Why do they like the retro look? Well, I think this kind of goes to, you, to the thesis that you're talking about here, namely uh, that the architecture really matters for what you do inside that building. And that retro look makes people realize this isn't a game we invented last week. Uh, this is a game that precedes us. And part of that heritage is part of what we enjoy. We enjoy the fact that there's been generations and generations from literally more than a hundred years, 150 years practically. Uh, and that's what's reflected in us in a, in a building that, that looks uh, like something that our ancestors would recognize. Wow. Yeah. That's a great point. The The next part I was going to get into just history and, and you hit on this a little bit that, that the actual matter matters, but um, in the post conciliar era, we saw a lot of churches to put it bluntly, just kind of become more bland, I would say, in, in their architectural style, to the point that you almost couldn't tell the difference between a Catholic church and any other Christian denomination church. Was that just a reflection of like the postmodern architecture in general? Or was there something specifically about the culture and about uh, the view of, of Catholicism that led people to build churches in that ubiquitous way? I would say the answer is both. Okay, Because what you want to consider is uh, because religion had been declining, let's just say fairly since the French Revolution. If you really want to be honest about it, the, 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 the turning point for, you could say the French Revolution was the dividing line between what was left of the Middle Ages and the modern era. And really ever since the French Revolution, religion had been declining. As a consequence, uh, you know, church uh, architecture had become less and less important. Churches become less and less important and supply and demand. I asked an architect once, why are old churches so much nicer than the new churches? And he basically said, supply and demand. When the demand goes down, um, it becomes prohibitively expensive to do certain things that were once cheaper. Part of the reason why you could describe modern churches as bland is cultural. Fewer people want new stained glass windows. So if you want them to look great, it's now going to cost you more. And people are trying to build on a budget. Um, Part of it, and this gets almost into, into, into intellectual history now, it, it, it run kind of deep. Part of the reason why is because uh, uh, essentially postmodernism had become a man-centered reality. Everything about 
the church up until we'll just say safely say the, the modern era or even the enlightenment era had been absolutely unquestioned undeniably god-centric so everything was uplifting when you see a soaring ceiling in a church it directs your your mind and your heart upwards um uh, that's because the focus of the entire society that built the church and designed the church was upwards. But if the focus in the society is on man himself, uh, the question becomes convenience, comfort, um, uh, e- economics of, uh, of building, in other words, not having to, 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 to cost too much. And so um, uh, what began to predominate actually in the postmodern era was the only other architectural form uh, that people had been able to gather in, namely an amphitheater. A lot of your modern churches are basically theaters where like a stage, like, like in a theater, the stage is down low and everyone's sitting down and watching it as if to say, entertain me. That's the absolute antithesis of worship. We're not, we don't go to mass to be entertained. We don't go, we don't pray to be entertained. It's not about us. It's about God. So partly what might lead, what might lead one to describe a modern church as bland uh, is that intellectual history by which man-centeredness had replaced God-centeredness? So the answer is kind of both. It, it's both uh, it's both intellectual and it's both and it's culture. It's economic. It Cost too much to build the old churches. And I bring this up because baseball saw a similar shift pretty much along the same years in the middle of the 20th century. Because um, obviously baseball history is much shorter than church history, but in the early 20th century, when baseball was just moving into cities, um, parks were built on these city blocks using old materials. And that's kind of how the, the classic baseball look was invented is they were just trying to force parks within they had in cities using the materials they had. And some of the really good ones from back then, like Fenway Park in Boston and Wrigley Field in Chicago, still stand today. Um, but then in the post-war era, especially as people moved away from the cities into the suburbs, you saw sports teams move out of the cities and use multi-purpose, big concrete stadiums that almost had the same look of, of giant theaters um, that just became really, really bland. And much like the postmodern architectural style in general, the stadiums were very much utilitarian versus like beautiful versus um, something to actually behold in a city. What do you think, or, or was there a specific cultural moment that made people realize the value of beauty and architecture again, that made them push back towards the older churches of the Gothic and classical eras? I don't think there was a particular moment uh, in which it happened, but rather uh, there was an awareness that uh, if one wants to save money, say, for example, creating something like the uh, Oakland Alameda County Coliseum, uh, which I think everyone agrees is probably the worst stadium still standing in the world, um, you save a lot of money that way. You have one park for both sports, um, but it comes that money savings comes at a cost that's even greater, um, namely a spiritual cost. The spirit of football gets sacrificed to baseball. The spirit of baseball gets sacrificed to football. That spiritual cost at some point becomes evident to people. And they realize um, that it's worth money to build things that elevate your spirit. It's worth money all by itself. Um, in, in bygone centuries, we recognize that more than we do in the modern era. Uh, we almost had to taste uh, the real cost of economic savings before we realized that it was a bad bargain. Uh, it came at a far, far, far more um, uh, 
It came at a far higher price. So at some point, people began to realize, hey, wait a minute, uh, we're losing more than we're gaining here. It's worth it to to spend more money building something that elevates people's spirits um, than it is trying to save money on something that, that f- flattens our spirits. So I, don't, I can't think of a single time in which that happened, uh, but I think what ends up happening rather is that someone makes that realization and acts on it. Let's just use, let's just use uh, Camden Yards as an example. Someone realizes that and acts on it. Others, once they see, uh, once they realize what somebody else had, had realized, you begin to realize there, there's few things in history more powerful than an idea whose time has come. People collectively recognize, yes, uh, this is a good thing. And, and then the tide begins to turn. And I'm, I'm so glad that it turned when it did, because now I want to say about two thirds, maybe even three quarters of, of all baseball parks have been built since that early 90s period. Yeah. And uh, it's really changed the viewing experience for, for a lot of fans. And this might go back more to the, the intellectual point that you made earlier rather than architecture. But I've heard you talk before about the scandal of the specific, um, which if correct me if I'm misunderstanding this, but pertains to, to people who are, I want to say, maybe afraid to exclude anything and therefore don't actually take pride in anything specific. And in, in I guess, yeah, their fear of, of being too like culturally uh, pointed they're too bland in their expressions. Is that an accurate portrayal, I guess? I say that's accurate. When, when I speak of the scandal of the specific, uh, what I mean to say is that, for example, everyone agrees in being honest, but they don't agree in being honest when it means that mom's going to discipline them from stealing from the cookie jar. Then suddenly their great principle uh, gets sacrificed because it gets a specific application. Right. Uh, scandal of the specific is a little phrase that I use sometimes to describe that that reality. Um, uh, and, and so everyone can agree uh, on, on great grand generalizations, um, but when you get specific about them, when you actually have to apply these in concrete circumstances, you can have legitimate disagreements. You can have legitimate disagreements as to how these things should be applied, uh, and that's where someone has to decide if they have the fortitude to follow through, if they have the, uh, the real will to follow through with their specific idea, uh, which could be improved upon, not the most perfect idea in the world, but at least it's moving motion forward in a specific, a specific way. Sometimes people back down when they're challenged like that. And so what ends up prevailing is blandness. Well, a world, sometimes I think a lot of the world we live in looks like it was designed by committee. Uh, committees committees are great at of at at never making at never making principled decisions for that very reason. The scandal of the specific means that somebody has to stand up for something specific, uh, and 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 pay a price for it. Um, that's why uh, you know a lot of times the most the most stunning things built, you know, get get built by people with a very strong vision and with a and, and with a very strong will, and that's right. not common. That's not very common. There's a lot more people that just want to get along. Ugly things are built by people who just want to get along. I think it was that commitment I was thinking of in trying to apply the scandal specific to ballparks and churches, um, because there was that period where it almost seemed like maybe people were too afraid to commit to something um, baseball specific or, you know, style specific in the Catholic church, knowing that maybe it would last for a long time. And in, in their lack of commitment, they almost made it so 
timeless, I guess, that it, it became obsolete very quickly. It, it's, it's, it's incredible how um, trying to save money is more expensive in the long run. A lot of these things that were built, no joke, a lot of these things that were built, say, in the 70s are now being torn down. You hit on this just a few minutes ago, talking about the spirit of both the church and the sport, um, which makes those sorts of stadiums, the the bland concrete style, to be uh, obsolete and replaced with the more beautiful, the more uplifting spiritually arenas, I should say, uh, for either of these. And and so not just to kind of hit it with a hammer, I've, I've heard Bishop Barron um, refer to the mass as the ultimate form of play, meaning that it's it's not used for anything else. The, the, the mass is an end in itself. And similarly, a lot of what we do for leisure is like that. Sports uh, are, are a great example. Um, and so it's almost like these things, some people kind of relegate them to just leisure, but in reality, because they're useless in that sense, because they're ends in themselves, they become the most important things of what we do as a culture. The, the structure, like you were saying, needs to reflect the the mass importance that we replace uh, that we place on these things be it the mass or be it the game and i think as you've said like in the last 20 30 years what we've seen is just a return to that that spiritually uplifting portion of both these this is this is really important uh if the mass is like play it's because love is play love is play we're made for love that's the only thing that's an end in itself uh and I think the reason why we give our hearts to things like sports uh, is because there's, there's a love reflected there. I could go on about how sports is a microcosm of life. It takes all the ambiguities away. I mean, you can get everything done in nine innings and everybody knows the rules, but the same emotions of life are played out. And that's why people love sports. Um, and when you find uh, something, that's ref- something that's built reflective of love, you always find beautiful details in it. The trouble with the old style bar parks, old style churches for that matter, is I think the greatest love was economics and convenience, not love of what happened in that place. People who love their faith, sacrificed for their faith, built magnificent places to celebrate their faith. Um, people who love to save money built places that look like they love to save money. I think the same thing would be said about ballparks. Somebody loves the game of baseball and they want a, su- a suitable setting for it and it might cost them more. So I think the idea that the, um, love is what we're made for, and that's why the greatest things that we do are like play, because love ultimately is is play. Right, definitely. Yeah. And you mentioned this before with, with the city's history, but the fact that that both of these places are, are these timeless places that need to reflect the past, present, and future of, of what we're doing within them. Another thing that we see in both is that history expressed through art and through relics. So for instance, in churches, we have stained glass windows, we have the Stations of the Cross, we have artwork that displays the history of our church. Similarly, in ballparks, we have we have a similar thing going on. We see a lot of historical displays throughout. Um, and then relics, we have in baseball parks, we've got bats and balls and bases and jerseys of the game past. And in churches, we have actual relics of the saints. So do these physical reminders like really help us to, to spiritually engage with our past and present? Absolutely. The reason why is because we are, as human beings, uh, we are both a body and a spirit. You are not merely material, although clearly you are material. Um, you're, you're also a spirit. As a consequence, things, physical things that 
speak of a, of a reality larger than themselves, we're always going to be attracted to those things. Uh, we're going to be attracted to souvenirs from trips that we've been on. We're going to be attracted to giving and receiving gifts from one another or things like handshakes or an embrace or a smile, all physical expressions of larger spiritual realities. So you, you go to a ballpark and you find championship banners from years past. Um, it's not enough just to win the championship. You need the banner to remind you. Why? Because that's who we are as human beings. We, we have spiritual realities like winning the championship mattered, but we need something physical too. Uh, the physical thing, re, re, that's why we get about trophies and medals and, and all of that. Uh, so yes, all of our spiritual yearnings, uh, whether it's pride in what someone's accomplished in the past or a great player from the past, these things are always going to be brought out when something physical is involved. That's the importance of relics. That's the importance of uh, uh, halls of, uh, of trophies or um, uh, museums that commemorate uh, people, great people from the past and, and have visible mementos of them. It brings out our spirit right here in the present. Awesome. Yeah. Well, one of the most prevailing, I don't know if it's a symbol or, or metaphor uh, you'd say for a church is, is it being a ship, um, the world being on troubled waters and the church being a ship of salvation. One of the themes, uh, I guess, foretaste of that in the Old Testament is Noah's Ark, where you have a representation of the whole of creation being saved on this ship. Um, so it is now with the church, with all peoples of all races and ethnicities and genders and ages, all being saved on the ship that is the church. A similar thing happens in, in a baseball stadium because within a certain, I'd say, range of, of people, any, any people who can live and work in the city, you've got all sorts of races and ages and genders um, and working class and upper class and, and uh, both sides of the political aisle that come together in a baseball stadium to enjoy a game that transcends any of those divisions. So is, is there a universal truth behind that sort of beauty, that sort of love, as you mentioned before, that's accessible to to anyone in a city? Well, I think what you're reflecting on there is, is a spiritual reality uh, uh, by which we are all individuals. Everyone's uniquely individual, and that deserves to be celebrated. However, at the same time, we're all together members of the human race, uh, and that deserves to be celebrated. One of the greatest things, um, one of the greatest joys that we have is when we experience both at the same time. So when you go to, say, uh, let's just, you could talk about a church, you could talk about church or sports, actually, in, in the same vein. Uh, let me just, I'll stick to church. You go to Mass, uh, and everyone together is united as one. And that, that reflects a reality for who we are. We are all one human race. We're all united in our love of what's happening at that altar and, and of our Lord. And yet, we're joyful to look around us and see all these different people. Uh, you'll, you'll find... The, the wealthy and the poor kneeling down right in the same pews. And, and there's, a, there's a joy in recognizing all these different people, all these different ages, all these different backgrounds. You recognize and, and celebrate them just for who they are. But the reason why is inseparable from the fact that we've all been brought together. We're not atoms uh, completely disassociated one from another. Same thing happens in a ballpark. You're real happy to see, uh, I don't know, um, uh, some representational group, or maybe I don't know, the Boy Scouts from somewhere, or uh, or, or different groups of different people, uh, all kinds of different educational backgrounds. I mean, you know, it, one of the most joyful things is when what was that uh, that intellectual George F. Will wrote a book on baseball, and it made him more human, more uh, uh, approachable to so many people because we had this in common. 
So that's, I think that's what you recognize both in, in sports and in the church. What unites us is accentuated. Uh, uh, I should say what, what, what makes us individuals is accentuated when it's all united in what we all love together. And it's really cool that language reflects this too, because another word for the church is ecclesia, which means to be called out of the world. And, and like you said, we really are a representation of this entire human race, but we're all individual. We're all in the world ourselves and have our identities in different things in the world as well. In, in buildings, in these church buildings, and these baseball stadiums, we gather kind of as microcosms of our, our cities themselves. And in church, at least, it's a foretaste of, of building the city of God. So is there anything specific about the, the church itself that, that shows the humanness of, of the city around us now, as well as our, our vector, I guess, toward the city of God? Well, I think that the vector towards the city of God is recognized and is, is reflected in what we're all aspiring towards. Uh, our humanity right now is in a, a humble admission of the fact that we're not there yet. Um, when we hear the scriptures read, uh, we, we are, if we're hearing them correctly, we're rightly uplifted to know what we're called to be. Yet we look back at ourselves and we recognize that we're, we're still very human. We're still a long way off, uh, but that we can confidently turn to God who gives us the strength that we need um, to continue, to keep on going. Uh, so I think, that, I, think that would be, um, I, I think that would be an expression uh, uh, of, of, the, of the human part of us as well as the ideal that we strive for. All right. Well, Father James Hutchins, thank you. These were some excellent reflections, I think, on, uh, on both our arenas, the church and, and the ballpark. Um, and I'm glad that you know as much as you do about ballparks, because uh, it might have been a stretch to have this conversation if, if you didn't know as much as you did. Glad I was able to come through on that for you then. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, you can read more at topsteptalk.com. For Paul Fritchner, I am Steve Miller. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on the Top Step.